The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is the Lawfare Archive. Hello, this is Lawfare intern Ajay Sarma with a podcast from the Lawfare Archives for July 4th, 2021. Earlier this week, 21 men convicted of being members of the Islamist group Al-Shabaab were executed in Somalia. While the executions were carried out, at least 20 soldiers may have been killed when Al-Shabaab militants raided the town. The events of the past week in Somalia are just the latest development in the fight against al-Shabaab and represent an opportunity to revisit the role of the U.S. in combating the terrorist group based in East Africa and Yemen. For today's episode from the archives, I went back to December 3, 2016, when Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Ben Wittes sat down with journalist Charlie Savage to discuss the significance of the interpretation of the 2001 authorization of use of military force being expanded to broadly cover the use of force against al-Shabaab. Lawfare listeners will be able to better understand how the U.S. has come to consider al-Shabaab as a threat in its own right and its role in the U.S. war on terror. Early this week, the New York Times published a story by Charlie Savage, Eric Schmidt, and Mark Mazzetti, informing us that the Obama administration had once again expanded the scope of the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. Whereas the administration had previously considered the AUMF to cover military action against the Somali terrorist group Al-Shabaab, only insofar as that action targeted members of Shabaab individually affiliated with Al-Qaeda, the time story indicated that the AUMF is now being read to apply to Al-Shabaab more broadly. We brought on Charlie Savage and Bobby Chesney to talk with Benjamin Wittes about what this decision means, where it came from, and what it can tell us about counter-terror operations at the end of the Obama administration and the beginning of the Trump administration. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 199, Al-Shabaab under the AUMF. All right, so let's start with Charlie. If you could just give us an overview of this uh, amazing story you guys wrote this week that has been uh, a little bit overshadowed by uh, tweets of the president-elect, but uh, is of abiding interest to uh, Lawfare's readership. Absolutely. So uh, I co-wrote this story with my colleagues Mark Mazzetti and Eric Schmidt. Uh, Mark and Eric had been part of a, a a different trio that wrote a story in early October 
about escalating uh, military activity in Somalia over the past year. Uh, and that story was mainly descriptive from an operational standpoint. More bombs are falling, more you know, counterterrorism missions are happening, uh, things are heating up in Somalia. Uh, and as part of talking to them when they were working on that story and then uh, took about a month to follow up and suss this out, I got very interested in what the legal authority was, uh, or at least what the administration's theory of its legal authority was, and started pulling on strings and they asked questions as well. And eventually what we figured out was that the executive branch has at long last uh, decided to do something that it had been arguing with itself about whether could or should be done since its first term. And that was to declare al-Shabaab as a whole, the, the Islamist militant group in Somalia, to, uh, a part of or an associated force of al-Qaeda for the purpose of the 2001 authorization for use of military force against the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks. That is, it's now part of the al-Qaeda war. And that means they think that they have uh, domestic uh, authority to fight al-Shabaab uh, in Somalia without raising a war powers resolution problem. And uh, perhaps more importantly, that President Trump uh, will have a, without needing to do anything controversial, will inherit a sort of freer hand in terms of legal authority um, in Somalia if he wants to escalate operations there. And importantly, the administration is not, the Obama administration that is, is not declaring at this point, and presumably before it leaves office, will not, that Somalia is an area of active hostilities. That is to say that the 2013 drone strike limits that are intended to protect civilians will be rescinded there and it will be free fire on any al-Shabaab foot soldier at will as if it were a uh, sort of traditional battlefield zone. Uh, but for the purpose of the ever elastic, always stretched AUMF, it has been stretched again now to encompass the Shabaab. So a couple of clarifying questions. Uh, the first is, uh, this essentially treats, uh, for the first time, al-Shabaab in general, the way we have treated AQAP and ISIS uh, for the past several years. That is, as organizationally either simply part of al-Qaeda as an original matter or associated forces. Um, and the question is, is it clear to you whether al-Shabaab here is being treated as an associated force of al-Qaeda, of an associated force of AQAP, or an associated force of ISIS? I do not know the answer to that question. And supposedly the War Powers Resolution semi-annual letter to Congress in December that lists American deployments around the world and is also a public document will clarify, we, I, I assume that it's going to be an associated force and not part of al-Qaeda, uh, what exactly the theory is, and in particular, what it'll be sort of important to know uh, to the extent they tell us what the facts are uh, that support this. It's, it's easy to see why it's 
what their motivation would be from a legal perspective to root this in a congressionally authorized authority. Um, but they, that was a step they hadn't taken for many years, despite some internal pressure to do so. And so one of the things that we couldn't get people to talk about, either through the front door or the back door, was what has changed? What is it that the intelligence shows about, presumably, you know, contacts with uh, uh, other terrorist group leaders and so forth, uh, and internal communications and intent that shows that this is something that is factually justified, even when it was a step they weren't willing to take a few years ago, when the assessment seemed to be that al-Shabaab was a sort of loosely organized, uh, competing set of rival factions, only some of which cared at all about al-Qaeda and its sort of global jihad aspirations, while other parts of it were purely focused on parochial issues like controlling Mogadishu. So, Bobby, walk us through what the prior, elaborate a little bit on that prior understanding of Shabab. As I understand it, I think, if I recall, uh, I, I forget whether it was one of Jay Johnson's speeches um, or maybe Attorney General Holder's speech sometime back, where uh, they basically said that they have not taken the position at that time that Shabab was an associated force, but they have looked on an individual basis as to whether individual commanders were sufficiently entwined with the AQAP or Al-Qaeda hierarchy to be part of, in a meaningful sense, Al-Qaeda. Is that the sum total of the prior position, or is there some more elaborated uh, position with respect to Shabab institutionally? Well, that's the sum total of the publicly stated prior position for sure. But I think it's important to emphasize that there are two major moving parts to our use of force in the Somali East Africa area. So first is what you said, and it's the stuff that does get talked about in the past publicly. That is, um, the connection to the AUMF is based on individual ties of particular targets to uh, core al-Qaeda. And, and there's, there's some sense to that, for after all, um, you also have al-Qaeda's East African cell or franchise, however you want to think about it, uh, operating in the same region with a lot of the personnel who years back you would primarily categorize, if you had to categorize them organizationally, as al-Qaeda agents or operatives in the region, these are some of the very people who then uh, get involved with the indigenous al-Shabaab uh, collection of, of organizations and, and end up in, to some extent, an influential leadership role. So when you have people that fit that bill in the past, when they've been targeted, the government's been very clear that this is based on their specific individual ties to, to the al-Qaeda network. And consciously going out of their way to say that we are not asserting that al-Shabaab as an organization has has crossed that line into being an associated force engaged in hostilities uh, in the relevant way. Now, the thing is, that doesn't describe all the bases on which we've been using force in that area against them. You have an entirely separate uh, path, at least I think it's entirely separate, that amounts to a self-defense argument. And there's a lot of complexities here, but let me try to sketch an overview. You have circumstances in which uh, airstrikes, possibly other forms of force, but certainly airstrikes, 
have been used and the justification given has been in whole or in part that the individuals targeted or the group targeted um, posed an imminent threat. And, and let's pause there and note that in this context, imminent does not mean a layperson's understanding of imminent. It means something more akin to constant or looming or continuing threat with an uncertain timeline. Uh, an imminent threat of carrying out an attack either, and that's critical, either on U.S. forces or presumably African Union forces that were supporting in that area. And the, the best example of this is the, the uh, substantial attack carried out not that long ago on the Rosso camp, where a large number of just graduated uh, uh, Shabab fighters uh, were targeted in one fell swoop um, because it was a, a fleeting window of opportunity combined with, we are told, intelligence suggesting that once they dispersed, eventually they'd be carrying out attacks either on U.S. forces or the African Union forces. That whole theory is is not hinged on the AOMF. That's about force protection and acting uh, preemptively to take out threats, uh, both to our own personnel in the region and, and to others. So let's unpack some of this. When you say, as I, so, so Charlie, do you have a sense of uh, why this changed now? I mean, what was, uh, as you understand it, inadequate about the prior understanding uh, in which you know, as Bobby lays out, there's AUMF coverage of a certain set of people and subgroups, and then there's Article Two self-defense coverage of imminent attack on 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 either U.S. forces or imminent threat to U.S. forces or Allied African Union forces. For some reason, now for the first time, that becomes inadequate to support the operations that we're. Uh, want to do, and I guess I'm curious whether you have any sense of of what changed over the past few months that necessitated that change in in legal interpretation. I do. Let me um, in trying to explain this coherently. Let me sort of start uh, a couple steps before the first last couple of months. So, number one, this dispute about what the what al-Shabaab status is under the AUMF and whether we are at war effectively only with a handful of guys who are dual-hatted in Somalia with, with core al-Qaeda, or we are at war with the thousands of low-level militants uh, who make up al-Shabaab, uh, traces back to the first term of the Obama administration and was sort of the subject of fraught internal fights between, in particular, Harold Coe at the State Department, uh, who took the more dovish position, and Jay Johnson at the Pentagon, who took the more um, hawkish position, but also sort of flipped back and forth over the course of that term. Then in the second term of the Obama administration, uh, both of those guys are out of those roles, of course, but the Obama launches a couple sort of refined counterterrorism strategies that are sort of become his signature, I've learned what I'm doing, and, 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 and right-sizing of the war on terror efforts. The first is in 2013, he gives a speech at National Defense University, and he issues the presidential policy guidance, which I'm sure any listener to this podcast knows about, 
we're going to have uh, the, the bottom line of which is we're going to have much more constraint as a matter of policy in terms of counterterrorism strikes, drone strikes, and otherwise outside of traditional war zones. Uh, only striking at uh, when there's a high level agreement that a target poses a threat to Americans, not just to American interests, and that there's uh, virtual certainty that no civilians will be killed. And then the second part of his second term counterterrorism strategy is he lays out in 2014 at his West Point speech, and that is that the United States should not be uh, sending its own forces in a heavy-handed way to occupy uh, foreign countries in the Muslim world. We should have a light footprint approach where we build up and, and work with partner forces on the ground, and we help them both in terms of training and advising and perhaps with air power assistance that only we can offer. And so these two principles are both about sort of constraint and not being uh, heavy-handed and uh, creating situations that are going to lead to blowback. And they, in that sense, they sound aligned. Uh, but it turns out, as 2015 and turns into 2016, that there, were, uh, an there was an inherent tension between them. The drone strike rules of 2013 were designed against the backdrop of what Yemen counterterrorism strikes, which was the primary non-hot battlefield zone of that time, looked like, where we did not have troops on the ground working with partner forces in any meaningful way. We were sending drones in from bases outside of Yemen. They were taking a well-planned strike, and then they were leaving again. Uh, but when you instead have a working with partner forces kind of operation like we now have in Somalia, you've got partners on the ground and you've got American advisors who are embedded with them at their bases. They are going to attract fire and they're going to need defending from that fire. And then as the partner forces get built up and start going out on missions, including missions by themselves, which is the whole goal, they are going to get into uh, hairy situations and they're going to need bailing out. And even though they were the instigator of those fights, they're, they're going to need defending as they, so they don't get wiped out if they uh, get into something they can't handle. And so what we've seen in the course of 2016 in Somalia, in particular, is an increasing tempo or frequency of these uh, so-called self-defense strikes, either undertaken to defend African Union or Somali government forces with American advisors nearby who are also at risk, or as the year unfolded, uh, we saw a lot of these suddenly in, in late August, September, uh, Somali government forces were, as they've gotten trained up, increasingly able to go out entirely by themselves on missions, and then still got in trouble and we needed to carry out purely collective self-defense strikes where there was no tied to protecting Americans. So, so this increasing tempo brought to the surface really started with that March 5 strike that Bobby mentioned where the 150 Shabaab militants are killed and it's like, that doesn't look like an ordinary self-defense strike. And the concern led to questions in Washington. They hadn't been consulted. It was a purely AFRICOM decision to go forward. And the, and the, the sort of worry was maybe this self-defense exception to the PPG rules and the sort of very careful limits of when we're going to take airstrikes outside of hot battlefields, maybe this self-defense exception to that can, be, can swallow the rule, can become a loophole that opens the door to simply unconstrained warfare once again 
uh, under the label of self-defense rather than uh, some other label, but that the, the, the intent behind the 2013 rules would be gutted. That doesn't, but on the other hand, once you, it, uh, once you have troops on the ground and have partner forces, it, it is inevitable. And so I think there was, in working through that during this year, uh, there was a growing sort of comfort with normalizing that situation of sort of more regular self-defense strikes. But uh, there was also a recognition that if this was going to be something that was going to be happening routinely rather than, you know, once or twice in a blue moon, uh, it raised increasing pressures on for what the domestic legal authority was for these strikes. It had to be purely Article II commander-in-chief authority if there was no Americans at risk and if the, the partner forces were uh, going after just ordinary Shabab guys and not necessarily the handful that had, um, as individuals, were deemed part of Qaeda as well. Uh, this administration had gotten itself into trouble in Libya in 2011 with airstrikes that did not have congressional authorization and questions about the War Powers Resolution and its limits on operations that Congress has not authorized. And I think that a desire to leave counterterrorism policy in regular order without open questions and tensions that were unresolved and problems as they prepared to hand off this responsibility to the next administration, which they, of course, thought was going to be Hillary Clinton, not Donald Trump. Uh, but it led to the question of, let's take another look at Shabab. What does it look like today? Who's in charge? You know, a lot of the different leaders of factions uh, have since been killed since the last time they'd taken a really serious look at it. Is there a case to be made that this existing domestic legal authority can be brought to bear on the organization as a whole? And if so, should we now take this step in anticipation that this increased tempo of strikes is going to continue so that the next administration doesn't have to deal with uh, a war powers resolution mess as it walks in the door? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. All right. So, Charlie, you have put a, a a bunch of big, fat legal issues on the plate, and I'm going to ask Bobby to unpack them a little bit. So one is the question of whether the designation of al- of al Shabaab as now within the ambit of the AUMF, uh, as opposed to uh, not, but uh, individuals in it may be, is that plausible? Uh, based on the public record, uh, Bobby, in your opinion, is that a is, is that a a, a, an interpretation that the public record will support, or is that 
an example of the endless spread of uh, the AUMF well past uh, what the language of it will reasonably bear or both. You know, this is something that in a classroom at a law school, we would call a mixed question of law and fact. And the reason that's important is that, A, um, there's a hard enough question about what are the relevant facts. That is, what does it even mean to talk about al-Shabaab as a single organization, given the factions within it? Who are the current leaders? What exactly are their uh, formal expressions of allegiance? You know, you have a few uh, sub-leaders who have expressed an Islamic State allegiance. Uh, There are others who have have remained focused on al-Qaeda. Judging from the public record as opposed to having access to the classified information that's relevant, um, I don't think any of us are in a great position to um, weigh in on what the right sort of factual uh, state of affairs really is. Uh, There's enough in the public record to make it seem like it could be plausible, but uh, the the harder part, in a way, isn't really this foggy fact pattern. The harder part is that other piece I mentioned, the, the legal question, right? So how is this a mixed question of law and fact? Well, it's bound up in some uncertain, what I would describe as almost doctrinal details about what we mean legally when we say that there's an associated force of al-Qaeda engaged in hostilities against the United States. It's uh, frequently been said, and is even said in statute, that there is this idea of an associated force. What What is never said in statute or in a public statement by administration officials is anything very granular about what exactly it means for these these uh, diffused networks to, to count as an associated force. Um, and you can imagine a lot of possible variables that might be necessary or sufficient conditions for such status. It, you know, is it enough if the person who's the nominal leader of the overall group swears an oath of allegiance, swears bayat to, to uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri? Is it, is it necessary that there also be some certain quantum of evidence, and note the uncertainty about how much is necessary, some certain quantity of evidence that the group takes direction and, can, and is under the control in some meaningful sense of the al-Qaeda senior leadership? Um, there are a million ways one might slice it. And I'm not suggesting that, therefore, there ought to be a statute that tries to spell it all out in great detail. But I just want to emphasize, we, we really don't know, at least I don't know, and other people on the outside don't know, what goes on when there is a meeting, whether it's within the Pentagon or whether it's an interagency meeting, and people are arguing the point back and forth, what are the, fact, what are the variables that they think are truly relevant in this sense? Because it, it, it is clearly not the case that simply claiming an al-Qaeda affiliation is enough. That that much is clear from the public record. It's supposed to be something much more meaningful than that. But what are the real hallmarks of of uh, connection that gets you into the associated force category? And then, what degree of orientation towards the United States and external operations is enough? Related to that, um, the formulation used for bringing someone within the AUMF in this manner is sometimes phrased as engaged in hostilities against the United States or its allies or its coalition partners. Um, It's very unclear to me, at least, how much uh, that latter part functions as an independent basis. In other words, if you had a group that was not at all engaged in hostilities against the United States or external operations against us, but was very much focused on attacking uh, a local proxy force 
through which we've been acting and supporting, such as either a transitional government in Somalia or, or African Union forces, uh, if they're clearly an object of attack and we are clearly working by, with, and through them, is that enough? These are all elements of things that we just don't talk about much in the public record. So this brings me to my second uh, big legal question, which is the vitality of the uh, uh, idea that Charlie just described of Article 2 self-defense by proxy. That is, um, you know, everybody agrees that if there's an imminent threat to U.S. forces, um, that justifies uh, in a force protection context uh, the use of uh, lethal force. But, you know, what Charlie's just described is a series of events over a period of time in which the just and what you described earlier was a series of events in which we were uh, using lethal force, not under the AUMF, but to protect allied forces, African Union forces in their war uh, with al-Shabaab that is separate from the AUMF context. And my question is, how accepted is it that um, in the absence of congressional authorization that Article 2 self-defense force protection extends not merely to U.S. forces, but also to allied forces in an, in an otherwise unauthorized uh, conflict? So I think it's actually quite controversial. Um, there's, there's no doubt that there are plenty of people who, who would resist that interpretation because there's a question of line drawing there. Um, given that we do deploy our forces around the world, we work by, with, and through a astonishing number of other uh, allied uh, governments and, and indeed governments that aren't that on the front list of places that you think of as our allies. It does open the door to an awful lot. In, in fact, it opens the door to most of what you might want to use force for, at least at a, at a certain level of intensity. Um, so I, I think it's quite controversial. I do think that if you're looking for prior examples, uh, the Obama administration uh, did something similar, uh, though distinguishable, in the early days of the renewed involvement in Iraq that was precipitated by the surge of the Islamic State. Um, and I'm thinking here about the use of force in defense of third parties seemingly under color of Article 2, um, not because we were defending uh, security services or militaries we were supporting, but actually in a straight-up humanitarian fashion at Mount Sinjar and in other examples from the early months. It's been a while now, and, and we're all used to thinking about the current involvement against the Islamic State as taking place under color of the AUMF, but let's recall that in the early months of the revived uh, involvement, at least uh, through air power, the major argument that was being put forward, it was it was never early on an AUMF argument. People were still, I think, sorting out whether they thought they could make that case given the Al Qaeda Islamic State split. Uh, what was taking, what was being cited uh, in the formal government statements was uh, defense type rationale, immediate exigent self defense in in the face of a potential uh, humanitarian catastrophe that was going to, you know, uh, the destruction of a of a dam. At the Mosul Dam that might then have downstream effects, including threats to U.S. forces, or simply the the threat to the uh, the persons who were taking refuge at Mount Sinjar. I see that written a lot. That there was an article, a 
two operation and then it sort of was deemed an AUMF operation later. I'm not uh, sure that that's correct, at least in terms of what the conversation was behind closed doors. I think people were, because they didn't say AUMF in their public statements about Sinjar, commentators of the lawfare type uh, jumped to the conclusion that it was an Article II operation. Uh, It has been suggested to me that from the beginning, they had already had this theory and they just weren't ready to publicly unveil it yet. I don't even know what that necessarily means uh, in terms of any sort of substance, but uh, I just I pointed out that I'm not I'm not sure that they flipped theories, at least in their own minds. That actually makes a lot of sense to me, and I don't doubt it was the case that at least some people internally, insofar as they were would have could have been pressed to make the point, would say, well, you know, I would ultimately put hang my hat on 2001 or 2002 AUMFs. But what this highlights is the the difference between what we might describe as sort of the theoretical main or best argument that behind closed doors, some version of the interagency lawyer consensus uh, would attach itself to or sign up for versus what the uh, what the public facing um, subject to commentators uh, claim seems to be. And it's it's going to be the latter one in a lot of cases that ends up kind of mattering in the in the great subsequent game of grasping for precedence, right? Um, absent a really clear statement, either at the time or at least thereafter, that, that shows, in fact, the theory was X, not Y. If the public-facing statements seem to suggest Y, th- that's what people are going to latch on to. And so when they're looking ahead and saying, well, have we ever used force in a circumstance where it really was just you know, third-party self-defense, you know, people will think Kosovo, and they won't really care if people back in the 90s said, well, that's not supposed to be a precedent. That's that's a familiar argument. And and I believe very much that they're going to point to the early months of the uh, intervention against the Islamic State, and they'll say, you know, there as well, there as well was a period in which um, the AUMF didn't seem to be front and center, and, and Article 2 did. Even if at the same moment in time, if you could have pressed the relevant people, they would have said, no, no, that's at best a supplementary theory. It's primarily statutory. Okay, so where does this, uh, that's actually a good transition to where this leaves us going forward. Uh, we have uh, a new president coming in, um, one who has uh, both made uh, very bellicose noises about uh, crushing uh, certain terrorist groups, uh, most famously promising to bomb the shit out of ISIS. Um but has also uh, in many ways uh, uh, expressed a great deal of reticence about uh, involving us in unnecessary wars overseas. Um, and so my question is, what, uh, what authority uh, and what constraints uh, based on the AUMF does President Obama leave for President Trump? Well, I would, I'll jump in to take the first crack at saying something interesting in that area. One thing we haven't discussed, that, but that is a larger pattern that this uh, some Shabab change fits into, is that President Obama set up all these you know, constraints on his own contact uh, of the sort of war on terror. If, uh, and, but as he has been in his final year of office, there's a number of different ways in which he's been all loosening those constraints. Uh, 
So we've been talking about one of them, the sort of uh, shoring up of legal authority for this escalated tempo of strikes at the Shabaab in Somalia and the normalization of uh, routine or semi-routine strikes both in unit and collective self-defense uh, there out, outside of the ambit of the PPG, even though the PPG remains in force there. Um, another is that uh, in July, we think, uh, maybe early August, they quietly deemed the area around CERT in Libya to be an area of active hostilities. This is, was a strong, is a stronghold of the Islamic State, and the U.S. has been carrying out bombings there without obeying uh, the PPG. They just turned the PPG off there, and so that sort of, that demonstrates that the PPG can be uh, turned off. Uh, each time you do it, it makes it easier to turn it off the next time you want to. And in June, in Afghanistan, where supposedly the armed conflict uh, was over, uh, except obviously it kept going in various ways, there were limits on airstrikes um, after we pulled out and handed over Parwan and so forth. We were going to carry out strikes only to defend ourselves, obviously, counterterrorism operations targeting the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, or to prevent the Afghan government from suffering a strategic loss at the hands of, say, the Taliban. And in June, a fourth category was quietly added to when it was permissible to carry out airstrikes in Afghanistan, which was uh, to take out people who were preventing the Afghan government from or impeding their ability to carry out their own strategic plans. And so someone, you know, a shadow government in the, government, uh, in the province of X uh, competing with the official government uh, that doesn't necessarily fall into a counterterrorism or self-defense or any sort of category like that. And so in all these different ways, the, the Obama is handing over uh, a set of constraints that he imposed that have been loosened, and there's more wiggle room than there was before. Uh, I think all these things were done, A, because it was thought operationally justified, of course, but also B, with the thought that a Clinton-Kane administration would uh, be coming in and it would be, if not quite the same personnel, much the same governing philosophy and national security strategy that the Obama people have pursued, to see then what a Trump administration will do with these constraints. Of course, Trump could simply throw out the PPG entirely and open the throttle everywhere, or he might want to continue it, but certainly he'll have more wiggle room uh, to act uh, not because he changed something, but because Obama did uh, as he comes into office. What do you think, Bobby? Are, are, we, are we dealing with a situation here where uh, Obama is leaving Trump fundamentally a legacy of, uh, uh, of in interpretive restraint or fundamentally a legacy of interpretive empowerment that Trump can then do what he does, what wants to do with? Well, I think it's a little bit more the latter, but I just don't think he's, I don't think that there is much legacy really at all. There's, uh, as, as Charlie said, the PPG or the playbook, this is sort of the, the centerpiece of it, but it's, it's very obvious and no one denies that um, it's, it's discretionary entirely. It's all policy. And though there is in theory, um, some perhaps friction involved in obliging your successor to 
actually formally ditch it. I, I just don't think there's even the slightest doubt that uh, one of the first things Trump will do is he will very, uh, with relish, will ditch it. And he'll, he'll go out of his way to make sure we know he's ditching it so as to signal that uh, what he'll characterize as sort of a, a weak predecessor has now been replaced by, by him and he will be, he'll be more aggressive. Um, I don't think he'll be looking very much to try to cite examples of things, whether it's AUMF interpretations or Article 2 self-defense interpretations. I don't think he's going to care much about whether or not he can draw uh, some cover from his predecessor, although he certainly will be. I mean, I agree that it certainly could do so because I agree that there is some of that cover there. I just don't think it'll matter much with him. It would have it would have mattered in a different way, I think, if it had been President uh, Hillary Clinton. And then to a substantial extent, she'd be able to benefit by saying, look, this isn't that different. I'm doing what went on before. Um, and so I, I think that the idea, it's not that Obama's done things that are going to make it easier for Trump to then do things, Trump would, I think, be doing these things regardless. Still, it'll, it'll shape the conversation, right? And so, you know, on the one hand, Trump may not want to say, well, I'm acting just like Obama. He'll quite want to say the opposite, as you portray, just for sort of optics reasons of um, a new day. Um, but if people want to criticize that, uh, then at least the, 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 you know, and Trump won't be the one making it, but the, the sophisticated conversation surrounding him, uh, either coming from his administration or from sympathetic uh, commentators will be, well, look, but Obama did this. Aren't you Democratic Party types if they're the ones, you know, a Senator Kane in the, you know, back in the Senate, uh, uh, if they're tr the ones making this argument, They'll say, aren't you stopped from making that because Obama did X and Y and it didn't bother you as much as you're professing to be bothered now when Trump is doing Z, which is like X and Y plus one, but not out of the blue. Right. No, that's that's clearly correct on on the in the pages of the blogs and, and in your articles where the where all of us who are in the space kind of bounce ideas back and forth. Uh, certainly on AUMF interpretations, if and when we, we get wind and, and let me actually digress here to emphasize this whole conversation is more or less launched because of the great New York Times reporting that that reveals the Al-Shabaab decision. Ben and I and Jack and Matt and others have been arguing for a long time there needs to be a mechanism to ensure there actually is some public knowledge of these associated force decisions. There's you know absent really good reporting there's no particular reason to think that uh, we would know this. Maybe the War Powers Resolution document periodically would drop hints, sometimes explicitly, not likely uh, under the Trump administration to be very explicit. But in any event, um, when we engage in these debates, there will certainly be, with whatever we next learn about AUMF expansion, there will certainly be some criticism from quarters that you know, may well not have made that criticism under Obama, but will be more willing to do it under Trump. And there will be those, and I'm sure I'll be among them, who will be pretty quick to say, hold on, you know, if if this is really analogous in the abstract to the things Obama did, um, we have to factor that into the mix. I, I don't think the tr I don't think Trump or, or National Security Advisor Flynn are going to care much, but it'll matter for our debates. And th then the interesting question is, you know, how much are our debates going to matter? over the next four years. I hope they matter a lot, but I'm worried about it. Lawfare is beside the point. I would just also say sort of not quite in defense of Obama, but just to sort of um, not let make, make listeners who 
jump to the wrong conclusion by the, the tone of the last five minutes, that the fact that the PPG remains in place, notwithstanding that self-defense and even collective self-defense strikes are now understood to be part of it, notwithstanding the fact that it got turned off in CERT, uh, it's still a very meaningful document. It is going to be a big deal if and when President Trump jettisons it. It really does seem to have caused a great throttling back in the number of strikes uh, carried out away from conventional war zones since since 2013 when it came into power, into place, and probably um, you know quite a number of civilians are alive today who would not be alive had uh, had it not been the governing protocol, albeit one that was understood as discretionary in policy rather than. Uh, mandated by law. And so Obama may have, you know, created more wiggle room here or decided to normalize and tolerate more wiggle room there. But uh, it's not like he's handing Trump something where Trump can already, uh, citing the Obama precedents, simply become unrestrained. Um, it will be a big change when that, if and when that happens. You know, one thing that's worth emphasizing here that uh, you gave a great list earlier, Charlie, of, of various things that have been changing by way of loosening up. One that's worth mentioning in light of what you just said that we haven't noted before is the recent decision to uh, remove some of the policy-based constraints on targeting al-Nusra, the, the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, which uh, seems to have taken place in recent months. Um, that illustrates an important point, which is not all the policy constraints are in the PPG, right? Um, there are a variety of theater-specific uh, constraints on precisely who we go after and under what circumstances and to what extent, um, even within a full-fledged uh, zone of active combat operations like Syria. So uh, there, there are a number of these constraints out there, and the public really has you know, some glancing familiarity with the PPG. Th these other things, I think, are basically invisible to the public. And I think a lot of the change that's likely to go on will involve some of the policies that on the outside, we don't even really necessarily know all that much about. Related to that, um, I think it's significant that there's been talk recently about uh, increasing the independence of JSOC in terms of the ability of the regional combatant commanders to have but not just insight into, but control over what sort of operations may be taking place and perhaps though the stories are, are, are a little unclear at this stage, perhaps empowering Special Operations Command to play more of that independent uh, operational command role. Um, this is being described as an effort to ensure that the uh, JSOC, uh, global JSOC efforts against Al-Qaeda in the Islamic State um, will be more efficient and more effective and, and less subject to uh, region-specific considerations that particular combatant commanders may have in mind. Um, I think that's a space in which some of these unseen by the public policy constraints may go by the wayside in ways that are very meaningful, and it may or may not really touch on the PPG. We are going to have to end it there. Uh, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please spread the word and promote the podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, and email. Our music is performed by our associated force, Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.